The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. I was denounced from pulpits. The then Catholic Archbishop caused a letter to be read out in every Catholic diocese in Dublin uh, saying that this measure, the bill that I was putting forward, would be and would remain a curse upon the country. Hello, I'm Kevin Poulter, and in today's podcast, we speak to a genuine superwoman, Mary Robinson, the former president of Ireland, uh, author, podcast host, uh, climate change activist, and most importantly, lawyer. We talk about Mary's early career in Dublin, the challenges she faced fighting for justice and equality against a historical backdrop of religious conservatism. We also talk about her life now as an elder, working with some incredible names, as you will hear, and the changes that she's continuing to make uh, around climate change, climate justice, and for those who otherwise would not have a voice to speak out. The Hearing. Well, hello, Mary. Thank you. Well, I say Mary. I should yes. check, first of all, is that okay no, to call you Mary? That's fine. Uh, Mrs. Robinson, I know, is something that's been following you Very around fine. for a while. <laughs> um, back, back to your first uh, what, your first campaign, I think, to be president. That's right. Some bright spark thought it was a good idea that this would be my, my song. Your theme and tune. And actually, it seemed to work because uh, Jesus loved me more than anyone, you know. So <laughs> in Ireland, that couldn't be wrong. Uh, well, it obviously did, did a great deal of uh, good for you. Um, we'll talk perhaps, well, we will talk later about your presidency in Ireland uh, and the number of roles you've held and continue to hold. Um, UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, uh, obviously now an advocate on climate change as well, and a, a podcast host on the side. So um, you'll be telling us your professional, uh, giving me some professional critique maybe later. Um, so we met um, relatively recently, actually, at the Bloomberg Equality Summit yeah. uh, in strange circumstances. We were sat next to each other. That's right. Um, for a uh, an impromptu mindfulness session, <laughs> and uh, well, you you gave me a look. <laughs> uh, what what are your thoughts around that? Uh, just like yours, we're lawyers. <laughs> uh, a, a little bit sceptical, maybe. A bit sceptical. Yeah. Uh, but uh, nonetheless, nonetheless, we have managed to use that opportunity to have a chat as well. And I hadn't realised your legal background. Um, so how did that come about? What was your interest in the law? It was an interest in justice. Uh, I. Uh, had this sense that uh, law was uh, something that could uh, improve social justice. So the cases I was interested in were cases on equality issues, cases on uh, issues of uh, you know people being badly treated, for the young people being badly treated, etc. And uh, you know, when Ireland joined the European Union, it was fun to take cases to the court uh, in Luxembourg. I'd already taken them to the court in Strasbourg, so. Uh, I enjoyed mm. my time as a lawyer, and I thought that was going to be my uh, life's work after I retired from the Irish Senate after 20 years in, 19, in August 1989. It was because I was so busy with my legal work, and I had joined Hare Court um, here in London, mm. again for cases um, under the uh, European Union. And uh, I was very surprised when I was invited to accept a nomination for the presidency which was a no-hope nomination, 100 to 1 outside. And that was with Labour originally? Yes. Uh, I had been a member of the Labour Party for part of those 20 years, and then over a complicated Northern Ireland issue, I went back to the independent benches and was mm. re-elected as an independent and then retired in after 20 years. But let me take you back a little bit further, and, and that initial interest in law, because your parents were doctors. 
That's right. Uh, so were there lawyers around the house? Um, My two older brothers uh, decided to be doctors, and uh, that was enough for me, I suppose. No, I, <laughs> I, I was very interested in, I, I, you know, growing up between four brothers, uh, I had a very early interest in equality and um, human rights and using my elbows. Uh, so uh, law was the natural thing. And I had a grandfather who used to speak about law to me when I was about 10, 11, 12. He didn't know how to speak to a child. And I became extremely interested in the cases that he talked about and you know, defending the peasant against the landlord and that sort of case. And uh, so I got the bug very well, early. And now you say that, having, having read and done some research about your, your career, but also what you're doing now, it is very much about the peasant against the landlord. It's, it's taking those voices that might otherwise not be heard and putting them onto a much greater stage. Yes, I came late to the issue of climate change, but I came to it from a, a human rights lens. So I always talk about climate justice, not climate change, mm. because of the injustice of how climate change impacts on very poor countries, on indigenous peoples, on uh, small island states. And now um, school children have, if you like, mainstreamed the injustice yeah. because they show it's an intergenerational yeah. injustice which affects everyone. Yeah. Uh, what were your thoughts about that? Because of Greta oh, I, I spotted doing... Greta Thunberg when she was a 15-year-old. I think one of her first days there was a photograph of her and she was so tiny mm. with her handmade sign mm. outside the Swedish parliament. Mm. And I said, wow. You know, I love that intergenerational injustice idea. I mean, I had been speaking about it, but not not as much. Yeah. And then, of course, she's now become a superstar. What I like about her is she's also coped so positively with the fact that she has Asperger's. And I think she's done a huge amount for autism, for Asperger's, as well as uh, putting the injustice, the intergenerational injustice of climate change on the map. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and the point about it being intergenerational, I was recently at Glastonbury and of course David mm. Attenborough comes out yes. and is a mm. national hero. Yes, he's, um, a, he's a hero of mine too. I, I know him a little bit and, and I, I think we, we have a mutual admiration society going on. <laughs> but uh, he, I, I think it was very good that he became a voice for climate change, having been such a voice mm. for uh, the beauty of the natural world, the beauty of species, etc. And he was a very trusted voice. Mm. And when that voice spoke so strongly and continues to speak so strongly on climate change, it really has a big impact. Mm. Uh, yes, and, 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 and not just him, but yourself as well. You've talked about this, but the people that you are working with on these issues are at the highest level. Uh, they are the people who, uh, well, you've, the elders, yeah. uh, which is a group that you were a founding member of and uh, was, I think, originated by Nelson Mandela. That's right. See, I, I was you know, kind of informed that he was trying to form a group of elders in 2007, early 2007. And I must say, I was quite sceptical at the beginning. I mean, how do you have elders of a global world? And I went to a planning meeting, I remember, in May of 2007 um, in South Africa, um, a place that Richard Branson has, Ula Saba. Mm. And he, uh, we were a small number there, um, uh, Kofi Annan, um, uh, Jimmy Carter, uh, Grasa, Michelle, obviously, Archbishop Tutu was going to be the first chair, and uh, a couple of others. And uh, when Madiba, as we call him, came in, and, and actually we heard him coming because the, all the local uh, people who worked um, on this estate, basically, uh, were singing. You know, you could just hear the singing as he came in um, with uh, Grasa and, uh, and Archbishop Tutu. And he sat at the table, and he had a short speech, and then he spoke afterwards, 
And it was so compelling because mm. he told us, you know, to bring courage where there is despair, to bring hope. Um, and in particular, uh, not to feel that we knew more than people locally. Go and listen mm. and listen to young people and, uh, you know, uh, reach out to those who are marginalized, but be humble. And it was, it was uh, really impressive. And then we were launched on his birthday, his 89th birthday, in July of 2007. And that was very moving, uh, partly because um, Peter Gabriel, who with Richard Branson had, had the idea of getting Nelson Mandela to have a group of elders, uh, he sang the song Biko. Um, and I remember Archbishop Tutu just cried. You know, again, it evoked so many memories yeah. for him, you know. And he was a beloved chair. And then Kofi Annan was our second chair. Mm. And I was with him, uh, Kofi, uh, last July when we, after marking the 10th anniversary of the elders and the 100th birthday of Nelson Mandela, we went to Zimbabwe to help the election taking place there mm. at the end of July. And Kofi wasn't feeling well. And he just pushed himself and pushed himself. Mm. And then he got bad pneumonia on yeah. the way back and, and never recovered. And, and now you've taken that. And I'm taking, I'm taking the chair. Two very big shoes to fill. Uh, absolutely. Uh, and I've got no doubt you'll fill them uh, easily. Uh, but it, that's all of those things that have led you to where you are now. Um, you, you were talking about Nelson Mandela and, and the sense of justice. Well, somebody who knows about justice is right there. Um, but your sense of justice is not something that is, is new to you either. Um, you talk about how he spoke of uh, speaking to people around and, and speaking to the minority groups. But back in 1969, I think it was, you were speaking about those minority groups. You were speaking out in Ireland in a way which was perhaps not as popular mm. and certainly was against the status quo at the time. Mm. Uh, where did your, sort of, your, your you, you mentioned your brothers and, and your grandfather, <laughs> but surely there's more to it than that. You were speaking about family planning issues, you're speaking yeah. about homosexuality in Ireland mm. against the Catholic Church, in some mm. ways, of, of which you are a member. Well, when I was studying law in Trinity, I was elected um, as auditor of the Law Society. I've always been a bit pushy, you know. <laughs> and um, uh, I had uh, an inaugural address to give, and I decided to do it on law and morality in Ireland. And I remember going to see a very well-known constitutional expert who was actually in the other university, University College Dublin, as a professor of constitutional law, John Morris Kelly. He'd written a book on constitutional law, which we all used. And I went to see him to see to take it, get his advice. And he basically told me, no, that's not a really a good subject. There's no law in that. And I remember going out feeling mm. initially very deflated and then very kind of angry. You know, how can you say there's no law in this? Look at how it's impacting. Mm. Uh, look at it. And so I, in my inaugural address, I literally called for a removal of the ban in, on, in, on divorce in the Irish Constitution, the legalizing of family planning of contraceptives, and the removal of the criminalizing of uh, homosexuality for uh, consenting male adults, and uh, that suicide shouldn't be a crime. Uh, they were the, and that was in 1967. And then I went off to Harvard um, to do a master's. And I came back from Harvard with what my future husband called my Harvard humility. And that's why I decided to stand for the Senate um, for the university seats in right. 1969. And I got elected at the age of 25. And yeah. the first item was to reform um, the law on family planning. And, and that was a big move. <laughs> it was a bold move. Well, I underestimated uh, just how unpopular it would be. Because we, mean, do, we I, do look at it through a different lens now. Very much so, yes. I mean... I was denounced from pulpits. The then Catholic Archbishop, Archbishop McQuaid, 
caused a letter to be read out in every Catholic diocese in Dublin uh, saying that this measure, the bill that mm. I was putting forward mm. with two male colleagues, this measure would be and would remain a curse upon the country. Now, at this stage, I think I was 26, maybe going on 27. Heavy stuff. Yeah. I remember one time walking down the main street in Dublin, Grafton Street, and actually thinking that somebody was going to jump out and call me the, the, a witch from hell, because that was the kind of thing mm. I was getting, not in emails, because it was pre-emails, <laughs> but yeah. letters, and cut-up garden gloves, you know, symbolizing yeah. condoms and so on. Oh, gosh. You know. I just, uh, but how do you, uh, obviously you mentioned your husband already, who was around at the, the time, not necessarily married. We got married in December 1970. Ah, okay. Yeah. Um, uh, but, but how do you deal with that? How do you cope with that? Well, actually, he could see that I was very affected, so he decided to burn all the letters. And of course, we both now regret that, because we're <laughs> archivists, and, you know, it would have been better to have kept, maybe stored away. Maybe, maybe. But, but uh, I think it did help, time. I think, and I, I kind of, and I, I realised, you know, that uh, in a way, it was a good lesson to me that if you want to uh, change what I call harmful practices, mm. um, like gentle cutting now or uh, honor killing or that, um, you've got to actually work and educate and work from within. And what happened was the original bill, which didn't even get a reading and, and, and printing on the parliamentary paper, it was completely dismissed um, at its first reading. Um, but we then had a second bill on health family planning and mm. a third bill, but that one was defeated. And we were educating to the thing, and eventually, about nine years later, we got what was called an Irish solution to an Irish problem. <laughs> and um, um, uh, Hawhey, as Minister of Health, uh, Charlie Hawhey, brought in that bill. Um, so uh, I'm so proud now of mm. the modern Ireland mm. because you can see how we've gone full circle and having, uh, you know, the referendum on same-sex marriage, and even more so, having a referendum that removed the Eighth Amendment from the Constitution. As a senator, I not only fought against putting that into the Constitution, mm. I did a filibuster for hours and hours in the Irish <laughs> Senate, but I never thought we'd take it out. Well, we'll, tr it there. we'll try not to recreate it today. Uh, time is of the essence. Yes. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, uh, well, we, we've spoken to uh, Brendan before, who was who spearheaded, I think, the uh, referendum in mm -hmm. Ireland on the podcast, and just like, incredible work. But it's taken so many years, yes, 50 years. but it's been very good for the modern Ireland. I mean, we have a sense now, it's a country that's kind of proud of where we are. Mm. Uh, we're worried about what our neighbours are doing. It's called Brexit, but yeah. <laughs> we won't go into that. Well, well, we'll, we'll try and avoid it. Um, <laughs> and we can avoid it. Uh, but but this, the, the thing that you've also mentioned is this strong sense of morality, which has shaped your mm. career, your legal mm. career, your political career, and, and now is shaping your work net. The... That's that's something which is difficult to legislate for. Um, the changing the law doesn't necessarily automatically change society or, or view, points of view or opinion. Hmm. What challenges have you faced, and, and what legal skills have you perhaps used to try and change not only the law but also bringing people along with you? I think it's quite difficult um, to try to have a moral voice. I mean, that, when I was elected president. Um, of Ireland, uh, it was not um, an office of political power as such, but being directly elected by the people, it gave you a moral voice. Mm. And uh, I, I had to learn how to, uh, you know, work with that. Mm. Uh, in my inaugural address, I said I, I extended not only, you know, um, um, uh, uh, the hand of friendship, but I actually used the word love to people in Northern Ireland because I had already engaged a lot as a lawyer and. You know, I'd been up there, and I, in fact, I was elected by some constituents from Northern Ireland who are graduates of Trinity. You know, uh, so I had yeah, reason yeah. in lots of ways to to visit a, a lot. And, mm. and but it was unusual to use the word love. 
Um, and so when I was president, I made a number of visits, and then I made a very controversial visit to Republican Catholic West Belfast. Mm. Um, I went there at the invitation of six local groups because I'd been meeting them and they'd be coming down to Dublin, women's groups, even environmental groups. And they, and But I knew I would meet with Jerry Adams and shake mm. his hand. Mm. And I got very criticized, but it clearly was very popular with the Irish people. As mm. it turned out, there was a poll done the following Sunday and um, I think 90% of the people said, yes, she did the right thing or whatever. But these were the difficult decisions. And then I wanted to be a voice externally and as it happened, uh, I was asked by the Irish aid agencies to go to Somalia mm. in 1992 because the warlords were fighting and it was impossible to get um, the uh, food to the feeding stations and lots of people were dying, even in queues, waiting to get uh, the food. So um, I contrived with my office that I would be asked on public television so that I could say yes on television, which would pre put pressure on the government to let me go, because yeah. <laughs> I couldn't go without the permission of the government. Yeah. And that was a, that was a bit of a trick. As a but, manipulation, uh, maybe, yes, maybe it was. Say, but <laughs> but um, uh, and then, you know, it, it was easier two years later when the terrible genocide took place in Rwanda to go shortly after that. And, mm. you know, I have that relationship now with Rwanda because I not only went um, in 1994, but I also went back in 1995 when I was asked to represent Ireland at the 50th anniversary of the UN to use that seven minutes that I got, um, which many people stretched beyond, but I stuck to my seven Not minutes, but got Rwanda and the post-genocide burden on that country. In And the third time I went as president of Ireland to Rwanda was to a pan-African women's conference in March 1997, mm. less than three years after the genocidal killing. Mm. Those widows, and they were mainly widows, had managed to get women from all over Africa. Um, Mrs. Mbeki was there as wife of the then president Mbeki, and there were lots of other, uh, you know, ministers and even one vice president, I remember, coming mm. to support their sisters. And I think there were two of us from outside Africa, a Belgian senator who was obviously very supportive, and, and myself. So it was a kind of um, extraordinary, um, you know, indicator that Rwanda was going to go ahead with uh, a lot of focus on women. Mm. Oh, well, let, let's, let's use that, because... Um your book, hmm. and uh, when I've seen you speak as well, um, you there's a lot of there's a focus on women, yes. and there's so let me give it the, the full official title: so climate justice, hope, resilience, and the fight for a sustainable future. And um, but what what you do is well, I, I've read a few things, and one of the, the people I read talking about you called you a badass feminist, um, <laughs> which I'll which I'll work with, yeah. um, and. Uh, you speak to a lot of women in this, uh, across not yes, only in Africa, but across the world. Yeah, it, it, it's a way of communicating climate change because it's hard to get it across. So I decided stories were the way to, to mm. do it. And there are 11 stories in the book and nine of them involve women. But there are two good men. And two good men, that's true. <laughs> and um, when I realized, um, you know, how significant climate change was linked to human rights, mm. you know, that it was undermining poverty, so undermining rights to food and water, health, life itself, etc. Um, and I came therefore to, to climate justice. I also recognized the gender dimensions. Mm. And we put together um, a group of women leaders on climate change, who were the women ministers and heads of UN agencies who attended these conferences. Mm. And we worked with them. And when we got um, some progress on a new decision on gender, um, uh, you know, having gender balance of, of delegations and of, of committees and things of, of mm. the UNFCCC, then um, the women leaders 
made space for grassroots women, for some of the women in the book, Constance O'Kellett, for example, from Uganda. Mm. And the importance of that was um, the delegates at climate conferences come from cities. They're technicians, yeah. and they're mostly men are where there are now some very good women in the group, but still, um, it was a predominantly male world at the start anyway. And uh, very technical and scientific, nothing to do with human rights or gender, nothing to do with people, mm. basically. And we managed to change that by getting these voices in, mainly women, uh, telling their very courageous stories mm. of how they fought back against a devastating thing that they did not contribute to. Mm. And that was the injustice. Yes, um, but, but also this the way that you describe, particularly around women, having a different way of looking at things, a different way of looking for a solution. Um, yes, I'm, I'm very interested in, uh, you know, in women's leadership as we describe it. I think a lot of men are beginning to lead in this way now. It's, a, it's feminist leadership, basically. And it's more problem-solving. It's much less, it's not hierarchical. Um, it's, um, uh, it acknowledges um, that decisions come from a lot of people, not one, uh, you know, great wisdom or something. Mm. And uh, um, when we started the podcast and before we started it, I frankly didn't know what a podcast was. So, <laughs> uh, but, uh, and I was encouraged to do this with Maeve Higgins, who was eight years old when I was elected president. Um, <laughs> our byline is that climate change is a man-made problem and requires a feminist solution. And Maeve would never explain, but I make a point of explaining that man-made is generic, so it includes all of us. Men had more time and power to pollute, but we all are responsible mm. for climate change. And a feminist solution definitely includes men, and the more, the better. And we really want to show that the world is very broken at the moment. Mm. You know, the financial system has created such inequality. Mm. We need to address this. And we have frameworks to do it. I mean, the extraordinary thing is that in 2015, there were two major frameworks agreed. The 2030 Agenda in mm. September 2015, and I was the Special Envoy Secretary General at the time, was agreed with its 17 Sustainable Development Goals. And I think the reason for that agreement was because it was voluntary. Um, governments that signed up knew, well, we can pick and choose mm. where we'll go with this. When we got towards the climate um, agreement itself in December of that year, I had my focus as Special Envoy for the Secretary General. He told me to do it the climate justice way, so I was very much with the Small Island States, the Climate Vulnerable Forum. Yep. And I kept hearing, in particular, Tony de Brum, the Foreign Minister of the Marshall Islands, saying over and over again, do you want my country to go under? Do you mm. want us no longer to be a sovereign people? Mm. We need to see 1.5 in the text, 1.5 to stay alive with the mantra. And that was why we got the goal of staying well below 2 degrees and working for 1.5. Yeah. But the fascinating thing was the scientists had never looked at that. So the Paris Agreement had to ask the scientists, what's the difference between 1.5 and 2 degrees? And if we have to stay at 1.5 degrees, what, what do we need to do? Yeah. And they were the two questions, basically, that they answered last October. And it was a very stark report. Mm. Um, you know, What they said, basically, was that between 1.5 and 2 degrees, very bad things happen, because that's when more or less the coral reefs disappear. That's when more or less the Arctic ice disappears. And that's when the permafrost melts mm. and creates um, not only carbon, but methane, which is very dangerous. And so we shouldn't go there. So they said the whole world, not just small islands, yeah. should be at a safe level, which is maximum 1.5 degrees. And 
they said it's doable if there is the political will, mm. but what you have to do immediately is we have to reduce by 45% our carbon emissions by, from 2010 levels by 2030. Mm. That's 12 years, they said. Now it's 11 years mm. and we're in July. And that's what's very disturbing. So what I'm saying is that the voice of science, not just that IPCC report last October, but the more recent report in May about extinction of species, they have created an imperative of science. And those two frameworks are no longer voluntary or almost voluntary in the case of the Paris Climate Agreement. They're actually imperative. Mm. What we have to do is we have to implement in full and ambitiously, and then we're okay. Then we, we will get there. And, and you've, you've fought, as we've talked about, against uh, the church in some ways, against society, against the status quo. There's a new challenge now, though. We're, we're not fighting necessarily against changing minds on religion, um, although religion comes into climate change, uh, of course. Yes, and I mean, I admire greatly um, what Pope Francis has done, um, his Laudato Si, although he could have had more in, um, impact when he talks about care for our common home, he should have included some of the stories in the book, yeah. know, the role of women, the gender dimensions of climate. I had the opportunity to say that to him, so that's okay. <laughs> um, but I was actually there again, this was when I was there with the elders um, some time ago with Kofi Annan when he was chair. But more recently, I was at a meeting in the Vatican only about three weeks ago where he brought together the heads of the oil and gas companies and the heads of financial mm. um, bodies. And um, it was really very interesting because they signed up to um, a weak um, statement, but a statement on carbon pricing, right. a weak statement, but a statement <laughs> on climate risk disclosure. And they couldn't agree a statement on just transition, but we talked about yeah. it. You know? Yeah. yeah. Well, well, uh, and, and what we're also talking about are, well, significant states, well, we'll focus on the US maybe for the time being, <laughs> but who, were, who originally signed up to the Paris mm. Agreement, of course, and then are now withdrawing from it. Yeah. As a country, I know individual states, individual cities uh, are, are continuing mm. to pursue that agenda. But how do you, and, and I think you are the person to do it, of course, but <laughs> how, how do you even begin to deal with that sort of resistance, which is not necessarily about religion, it's not even necessarily about commerce? Um, well, I, I've been more and more outspoken about it, actually. Uh, and, um, you know, that kind of climate denial for short-term profit gains which is what it is, mm. I call malign and even evil. You know, I think we have to call it out. Uh, it's worse than the tobacco firms who muddied the reality of how dangerous tobacco was um, for, for health. This is worse because it's endangering the ecosystems, the species yeah. and ourselves yeah. in our future. So I've no doubt about that. And what I say increasingly now um, when I you know, talk to any kind of captive audience um, is that we need to take three steps uh, we need to, first of all, uh, everyone needs to make climate change personal in their lives. Um, do something that you weren't doing with a view to trying to cut your demand, cut your emissions a bit. Um, and I give the example that I've become a pescatarian about a year and a half ago. And, you know, I still mm. would love lamb from the west <laughs> of Ireland, but I don't cheat. And secondly, um, the second step is to get angry and get active. Get angry at those with the responsibility who are not taking it. Mm. And that basically is pretty well all governments. Yeah. It's obviously the fossil fuel industry, mm. but also agribusiness, tourism, transport, right across the board. And it's not only at government level, it's at city level. 
and town level, you know, mm. just really. And so use your voice and your vote and support all the bodies that are trying to bring home and trying to conserve, trying to mm. address these issues. And I mean, those working for fair fashion, f- slow fashion, slow food, you know, trying to do all the things. And, yeah. um, you know, and if, you, if you Google the world now, bring energy to um, those who are off grid, you know. And the third step, which I think is the most important, is to imagine this world we must be hurrying towards. Mm. Yeah. And, and I know you have grandchildren now, and that's one of the other... It's very motivating force, but... <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and and what, what, what does that world look like? Well, because they're young, I mean, the eldest is 15, uh, they'll be in their 30s and 40s in 2050, more than half their lives to lead, I hope, mm. um, share the world with about 9.5 billion at the moment, we're at um, about 7.7 or 7.8 mm. billion. So it is very worrying as to how there will be enough food, water, et cetera, for that world. I'm not just worried narrowly about my grandchildren. But um, I, I, I'm more hopeful now because of what children are doing, because of what Extinction Rebellion is doing, because of what um, women leaders are doing more and more, because of what business is doing. I'm linked to the B team of business leaders who in January 20. Um, 15 uh, in Davos, and I was there at the time, said that they would be net zero greenhouse gas emissions in their corporations and in their supply chains and do it the climate justice way. And I chair the net zero working group, Mm. co-chair it, um, of B team. I'm not a businesswoman. I'm their conscience. (laughs) (laughs) Professional. And and actually, they are determined to move in the right direction. If anything, Mm. they say 2050 may be too far away. uh, And they're saying, you know, 2040 or earlier. Well, that's incredibly reassuring. Mm. And uh, and investors, you know, they, there is a movement now. Um, of, you know, there are trillions that could be moved out of fossil fuel and into clean energy and into clean energy, supporting developing countries, transfer of technology, investment, etc. That would that would move mm. that needle very quickly. And I know that law firms are doing a lot in mm. this area as well to, to work with their clients, but also themselves to... Well, there's climate litigation. Yeah. Actually, our first podcast of Mothers of Invention was on climate litigation yeah. with Tessa um, uh, Shah, uh, Shah. And uh, she's half Bangladesh, half Australian. Mm. So she can you know, beautifully speak about... You know, and she worked on the uh, uh, agenda case. And, and, and when we spoke with uh, Anna Heslop previously as well, mm. listen back for the Client mm. Earth podcast. Mm. Um, so yeah, mm. incredible. And, and clearly has a, an important role to play. Uh, as do you. You've still got a lot of work to do, I'm afraid. Um, yes, I, and I've been encouraging lawyers. I mean, I, I, I had an opportunity uh, when the International Bar Association came to Dublin in 2012. They had me as a guest speaker at, at a lunchtime event. And of course, I challenged them. And I'd done my homework. And I said, you should establish a presidential task force. You should do this and that and the other. And they did this and that and the other. And I went two years later to Tokyo, where they had produced a really good report called Achieving Justice in a Climate-Inflicted World or something. It's still on the website Mm. of the IBA. And they actually invited me back last year to Rome, where they were meeting, for an update. They have a number of recommendations. Yeah. Lena Kennedy and a whole lot of yeah. them are really very active. Yeah. So I'm not sure about the American Bar Association. I think they're another nut to crack. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, keep trying. Keep trying, please. And, and um, you look, we know how much you're traveling around. We know how busy you are. Please Climate footprint, me, I, I do worry about it. <laughs> but, but tell me that you do take some time to sit down and have a rest as well. Oh, I do. Uh, and actually, I'm very lucky. I mean, the grandchildren are part of it. I have great family, um, great friends. And that's that's the relaxing, you know, especially... Our two youngest, um, aged five and two, come almost every weekend to us for a bath. 
um, which means a meal and a bath because they don't have a bath. They only have a shower where they are in Dublin. <laughs> and um, that's the most uh, wonderful, you know, way of uh, just enjoying. Uh, but also, uh, you know, reflecting on they do not at the moment have a guarantee of a safe future. Mm. And their granny is an angry granny. <laughs> well, keep being an angry granny uh, and uh, a badass feminist. And thank you so much uh, for your time and for the work that you're doing. And uh, we'll continue to follow you and wish you all the best and support you, of course, in that as well. <laughs> OK, thank you very much, Kevin. The Hearing. As ever, thank you for listening and we hope you enjoyed this episode. Join us again and why not give us a rating or subscribe? That way you'll get an alert every time we release a new episode. The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. To find out more, go to tr.com forward slash the hearing or subscribe via iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.